Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and this is a special bonus Inside Economics podcast. We're going to be focused on climate, climate change, climate risk, and uh, with a particular focus on, let's call it climate change adaptation. And we'll come back to that in a minute, define that, what it means, and uh, have a discussion around that. And we have a wonderful guest to help us uh, understand that a bit better. Uh, I understand he's a bit of a an iconoclast in the world of uh, environmental economics. So perfect for inside economics. Glad he uh, decided to come and uh, join us. But to uh, participate in the conversation, I have two of my colleagues, uh, of course, uh, Chris Dorides. Chris, uh, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be yeah. here. And uh, it's good to have you. And of course, Gaurav Ganguly. Gaurav, uh, good to see you. Hi, Mark. Hi, Chris. Hi, Matthew. And, good, to see you. good to see you all. And Gaurav, um, he uh, uh, plays lots of roles. Uh, you know, uh, uh, as you may know him, listener, as the leader of our team in Europe and the Middle East. But he's also in his own right. And I, I think we've talked about this in the past, but I'd like to ex- just explore it for another minute or two. He's a climate expert. Uh, he's, a, I'd say, a, a uh, an expert in climate risk, climate uh, change, and trying to understand what that means for uh, broader economic conditions. And he leads our climate risk team. Uh, Garab, do you want to just uh, give us a, a sense of your climate change bona fides? I mean, because uh, you do a lot of things that I can't keep track of. But uh, yeah, I, good I, I can't keep track that. of them either, Mark. But um, <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'd call myself an expert. I dabble most of the time. Um, so I spent several years before I came to Moody's, which was over a year ago, by the way. Um, I, 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 I did. It goes fast, doesn't it, Garab? You know, it's the hotel. So fast, you know, by the way, it's the Hotel flies. California at Moody's. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. You can I know check you in, mean. but you I can't can check, check in, out. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I, I did a fair bit of work at my previous employer, which was HSBC, uh, on looking at financial risk from climate change. And that's how I got started on this journey. And then I got dragged into doing some research at Imperial College and the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and looking at. Um, how climate climate risk should be measured and mapped uh, for different financial risk types, and from then on, I yeah, I then went on to teach at a research at, at at a degree program at Imperial, and then I came here, of course, and I had I had this the scenarios team, which does as I was explaining to Matthew earlier, um, all our regulatory scenarios for climate. So very much in that space of looking at regulatory scenarios for climate risk, transition risk, physical risk, all that kind of stuff. And once in a while, going off and teaching. Well, you, you've teased our guest a couple of times already, uh, Matthew. 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 Matthew Khan. Welcome. Uh, glad you're here on Inside Economics. It's good to have you on. It's great to join you guys. I'm here to learn and to be a little bit provocative. Uh, well, provocative is good, uh, and uh, we want to pull that out of you. Maybe, though, Matthew, you're obviously a, a well-known professor at the uh, University of Southern California, USC, and uh, do, uh, uh, do a lot of work in environmental economics. Maybe you can give us a sense of your background. And the one thing, I'm just to lay it out on the table, I'd really love to know how you can write as many books as you do, as fast as you do. I find it incredible. I think you tell me if I'm wrong, but you published two books in 2020, two books in 2021. I'm not sure what happened in 2022. You probably needed a, a long vacation, but I mean, that that's a that's a pretty, and I think you have eight books. I counted all, all together. I think I got that right. So uh, in your bio, I'd love to hear your, you know, how you got to where you are, but uh, I, I'd really like to know your secret sauce for writing books. <laughs> Well, Mark, I think, you know, there's quantity and quality. And so some of my critics would say, Matt, um, stop with the conjectures and let's see you clean up some stuff. And I hope we come back to that. But Mark, ah, I'm full of ideas. Okay. I, I want to tell one story from my youth. And I'm, I'm 56 years old and I'm feeling it. 30 years ago, when I was at the University of Chicago, I was a student of the Nobel laureate Gary Becker. And he was a student of Milton Friedman. I met mm. Milton Friedman once. And I cracked a joke and he didn't think it was funny. And so I, so I learned the importance of being serious. And I'll be serious in this podcast. At that time in 1992, 
Newt Gingrich, the Speaker of the House, was talking about shutting down the EPA, he kept talking about the costs of environmental regulation. And I turned to Gary Becker and I said, you know, but there must be benefits of environmental regulation. And we agreed that that would be a good topic. And Mark, that was the start of my working on environmental topics. And as a Chicago economist, always thinking about the intended and unintended consequences of regulations. So, so is Milton Friedman, do you take a course, you took courses from him, Milton Friedman, did, did you not? Milton Friedman retired from Chicago in 1977, but his yeah. students were very active at Chicago and were yeah. tough guys yelling at the new generation of students. And I've tried to be a nicer professor, I'm not as smart as those guys, but I, I think I'm nicer than them. Can, can I ask, do you remember the joke he told him that he didn't think was funny? It was a remember? joke about Chicago. It was a joke about Chicago winter and when he goes to Hawaii to visit the University of Hawaii. Oh, well, oh, I see. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it didn't work. I hear you. Not um, funny. Yeah. So uh, you kind of avoided the, 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 the question around your prolific book writing. Can you just give us a sense of that? I, it, what's behind? How are you able to do that? So, so, Mark, to be serious for a moment, I both write academic stuff for, mm. pe for peer review. But when you write a book, it kind of subverts the referee process. I'm looking at Chris as a PhD economist at Gurov. There's some very tough people out there. And when you write a book, you can bundle in more conjectures and more mm. things that may be true. And so, Mark, I, I want to be careful because we may have book editors watching this podcast, but <laughs> the burden of proof is not as strong. And so when I know that my conjectures can reach people like my mother, that is creates an incentive for me to work extra hard to get all my ideas out. Oh, it's cool. A, so so I, I'm a very, I love economics. My wife is an economist. My son is an economist. It's in the air. But when you write books, you're sort of free to just let it rip. And that's sort of dangerous for me. Oh, that's interesting. So you feel liberated intellectually. So you can just, just write. You don't have to worry about citations and causality and yeah. and mark to be serious there i have many conjectures that will only be proven over the next 15 to 20 years so, so i don't want to say like i'm like einstein with his comments and but i, I make conjectures <laughs> that will only know if they're right 10 to 15 years from now and referees say back con you can't get away with this you know we are a science and if we can't reject your hypothesis now then what then you're bordering on science fiction well, you know, we're, I think we're intellectual brothers, uh, Matt, you know, cause I, I, I'm, we're, we're conjecturing all the time. So, uh, and, uh, you know, the best conjectures are ones that are in fact way out into the future. So <laughs> you're not too worried about whether you're right or wrong. Uh, but that's it. That's, uh, but I, you know, I think it's a very intellectually important, um, thing to do, right? Because you're, it's common. The metaphor I have in my mind is you, there's this, uh, the Amazon intellectual Amazon forest out there and you got to sort of cut greenfield to kind of get out there and, you know, maybe leave a few what? branches along the way and, you know, it's a little bit of a mess and it's not a straight line, but without cutting that intellectual, you know, uh, pathway forward, you know, you don't, people don't move as fast. I, Mark, that's kind of I think. You know, this is a climate we risk. Can't, we can't talk that. about cutting down the Amazon. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's really bad. That is really bad. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, not really funny, but you know. But you get my drift. So, Mark, can I give one example of of my conjectures? There's a fight in climate change economics of for those purchasing million dollar homes in Phoenix, Arizona, are these guys mm -hmm. nuts? So the New York Times keeps writing papers that there's no water. It's going to be 140 degrees. How in the heck can people be purchasing multi-million dollar properties at Scottsdale? Behavioral economists say that these folks are nuts, that they're they're backwards looking, not forwards looking. And so, Mark, in a case like that, and this gets into Moody's and credit rating, I jump in and say, if we see someone with skin in the game buying an expensive condo in Scottsdale, are they technological optimists that will figure out how to use water desalinization to increase the water supply? Will these guys only be in Phoenix eight months a year and not be there during the summer in a work from home economy? So my, Mark, my mind is always moving perhaps too fast, thinking through how rational self-interested agents when they make a costly choice, 
could they really be behavioral fools? And so a large chunk of my work is set in the future, trying to battle some of the behavioral economists in a respectful way as I continue to take the efficient markets hypothesis seriously. Well, that's a great example about Phoenix, but let's take a just a, a step backwards to frame it. So, and first, I think everyone out there should know, and maybe you'd like to say, you're not a climate change denier. You're not denying that climate change is happening. That it, That's that's happening. The exact opposite. Because climate change scares the hell out of me, both yeah. what we're currently seeing, that the no, unknown unknowns are becoming known unknowns. The New York Times is doing a terrific job reporting on the climate challenge. And Mark, because I'm so worried about climate challenges for all over the world, especially for poor people, Capitalism is going to begin to kick in. So Adam Smith's invisible hand, the potential to innovate because of this anticipated threat. So I'm the opposite of a climate denier. Yeah. So climate change is happening. There's going to be uh, repercussions. Uh, We're going to have all kinds of physical risks, acute physical risks, uh, storms and floods and uh, fires and uh, chronic physical risks, heat stress, uh, uh, sea level rise. All these things are in train they're they're happening but what you're saying the the other yeah, 35,000 foot level is hey look uh this is the, we're gonna have to adjust to this uh you know p- businesses uh, governments people are gonna have to make changes to adapt to these uh these risks that these these events that are going to occur but this may not be as painful or as uh unreachable as it feels at the moment because uh, uh, if you let markets work, if you let pricing work, if you let uh, insurance markets work, financial markets work, real estate markets work, the, credit, the, the rating. price, credit ratings work, you you'll get to a place that is, uh, it's gonna it's gonna be cost, but it's it's not gonna be as as, as significant cost as some people seem to think. Is that a fair characterization? That is correct, Mark. You can't see the back of my head, but I'm bald. If I were the world's only bald man, no Rogaine, no cures for, for baldness, if enough people have a problem, a medical problem, the pharmaceutical companies step up. Economists are very used to this idea of induced innovation, that aggregate demand induces supply. Mark, that same logic underlies a chunk of my optimism of how capitalism helps us to adapt, air conditioners becoming more efficient air filtration suits to protect us from the smoke in the West, a a whole variety of strategies that I'm not a good enough engineer to anticipate. But this idea that aggregate demand for solutions, the expectation of misery actually creates incentives for innovation. And so that's, mark a point, there is such optimism in the Biden administration about green energy and innovation for mitigated climate change, there's an asymmetry that there isn't an equal optimism about our ability to adapt to these threats. And so that's been a fight among the nerds. Right. And you use a term called, which I find a a great term, uh, you called it endogenous innovation. So innovation, the way I would frame it is innovation that's incented and caused by things that are happening around us. And we uh, are going to adapt and change to those things and innovate uh, to be able to adjust to those things that are going on around us. And so it's within the system. It's not something that comes from outside the system. It's already in the system. Just just as long as we allow it to work, uh, this will happen. This innovation will happen. Mark, I agree. The Nobel laureate Michael Kramer has done very important work On the opposite, he's argued that in Africa, there's poor people who have medical conditions. And because these folks are not rich, drug companies are not innovating to provide these vaccines. And he's talked about incentives for how the rich world, the Gates Foundation, can incentivize drug companies to come up with cures for diseases that millions of poor people have. So, Mark, I'm not such a magical thinker to believe that capitalism works to innovate for challenges that poor people face. Capitalism often works and chases the dollars of where there is a demand. If real estate owners face flood risk, face fire risk, face particulate exposure risk, capitalism steps up. So a fascinating issue is what is how we configure free markets to to improve the poorest quality of life, because I'm very confident that Elon Musk 
and Jeff Bezos will be able to adapt to these challenges. The, the question is, is for middle-class people, will the products that we need be cheap enough and affordable, uh, similar to the air conditioner during the 20th century? So I'm, I'm just trying to frame your thoughts uh, a little bit so that folks have a really good grip on that. Then I'm going to ask my two colleagues to kind of start pushing you on different aspects of this. But one other thing I want to get clear and on the table is what you're saying, you're not saying anything about climate risk mitigation or uh, the need to provide, like in the Inflation Reduction Act, the you know incentives, the tax incentives and other incentives in that legislation to help with the move from fossil fuel over to green green energy. You're not arguing against any of that. That's not what you're talking about. That's correct. So, Mark, yeah. in my 2010 Climatopolis book, in the first chapter, I come out in favor of a carbon tax. But even 13 years later, no country has a carbon tax that we continue to see middle class people rejecting the state of Washington rejected a carbon tax. The fear that uh, that rising fossil fuel prices lowers the incomes and employment possibilities of less educated people for stalls introducing a carbon tax. So, Mark, what I would say is that I'm a realist because greenhouse gas emissions are going to continue to rise. And I'd love to see green tech bend the curve. Uh, I agree with Greta Thunberg. We need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But because I believe greenhouse gas emissions will continue to rise as the developing world gets richer and consumes more fossil fuels, adaptation takes center stage. I don't view this as surrender. Well, actually, I, I was going to let Garab push first, but I, I'd like to push back first. <laughs> just based on what you just said, because the one reason why I've been reasonably optimistic about climate and the threat posed by climate and, and it fundamentally it goes to what you're saying is that it's it's about price. If you price something, good things happen. Uh, you know, you, if you price it high, people don't do it. Uh, you know, so uh, you know, letting markets work and prices work makes sense. And in, in the carbon tax seems to be the most obvious, straightforward. That's a slam dunk. That's going to work. And into there are problems with a straight up carbon tax, meaning taxing CO two emission. One is what you mentioned is lower income households, they'll get creamed, right? Because they spend a large share of their budget on fossil fuel and energy, and they're just not going to be able to afford it. You could mitigate that risk by just taking the revenue, the tax revenue you generate from the carbon tax and just dividending it back to people. Get everyone a $1,000 check, whether you make you know $50,000 a year or you make $5 million, you get a $1,000 check very kind of progressive policy and you address that issue you you well, don't mark i agree but we've seen jim salee re released a recent paper so i agree with what you said jim salee released a recent paper that that's easier said than done but we mm. we continue to have the paradox i agree with you and with public finance economists who talk about tax and dividend but still we see no nation implementing this joe biden who's fancying himself as the new fdr has been afraid to propose that so mark if i can get in your face if it's so easy and if we can write it on an envelope like arthur laffer why hasn't fdr biden introduced this oh uh, I, the the politics of this are bad all i'm saying though is and i've observed lots of issues that look like they were off the table and then they were on the table because something happened. And you can imagine in a world of rising CO2 emissions and increasing risks, physical risks, things will happen to a place where people say, oh my gosh, we got to do something. And, and the most obvious thing to do is the carbon tax, the whole dialogue shifts. You know, with I actually disagree again. Even if China introduced a carbon tax, China is just like 15% uh, of the world's population. So the fundamental free rider issue here is in a world where we don't have global governance, any one country, even India, if it unilaterally took this action, is on some level being foolish. The, the free rider hypothesis lurks here that everyone's waiting for everyone else to be the first mover here. And, well, it, it, and so that's the reason I pivoted to adaptation, that I don't believe the free rider issue is going away unless green energy becomes the free lunch that the boosters claim. And we can come back to why I don't believe that. 
Well, and, and our, believe me, Matthew, I'm not arguing these things are mutually exclusive. Not at all. I think they're, you know, uh, they should be moving along the, you know, together. But on the point about the free rider, I mean, if the U.S. imposed a border adjustment tax and said, "Hey, if I'm bringing anything from China," You know, I'm going to take account of the their carbon footprint, and they're going to pay a tax, a tariff, to to pay for the for that carbon. So effectively, you're putting a carbon tax on the products that they're producing. And we, the United States of America, are the number one economy on the planet, 20% of GDP, and we count for a, lo a lot of the trade, uh, uh, second most in the world after China. That's going to make a difference. Uh, and Not that, for long. So, so I agree. The Nobel laureate William Nordhaus has endorsed these carbon clubs. I'm yeah. starting to write a paper of whether if we unilaterally did that, would that fracture the World Trade Organization? Would China form regional trade blocks with other countries? So there's very interesting game theoretic issues of if we unilaterally tried your idea. And I'd, I'd actually want to us to try. I agree with the importance of experimenting, but I worry that an unintended consequence would be to create regional trading blocks. Uh, so there's a question of if one mm. nation righteously tries to launch this, is this a stumbling block or a building block to a global green trade? And I think that there's points that can be debated there, but I hope that you're right. Well, uh, Mark, fair enough. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Mark, I, yeah. just to clarify, I, I thought the uh, mm. the road you were going down was if there was some type of cataclysmic event. Yeah. Right. We have this massive heat wave in the U.S. It yeah. kills 100,000 right. people. Exactly. Right. That might be a tipping point for uh, some action. It, that, it changes the dialogue completely. I wish that that's there. true, but I think that that would increase private demand for adaptation products. I don't see a setting. I like Chris's claim, uh, but we've had horrible events. The New York Times has tried to use Hurricane Ian. We've had all sorts of events that have not... Um, catalyzed uh, pu public goods. And so I like that hypothesis, but I think it actually increases the demand for adaptation products. Who are these marginal swing voters who have opposed carbon taxes up till now, who would be scared straight by these shocks? You'd have to trust government with the money. You'd have to believe that we can overcome the free rider issue. There's very interesting questions of who's at the margin here, if I could use some economic jargon, to swing their vote. The people of Berkeley are already with Chris. Of who are these swing voters in Dallas who would swing because of the heat wave? Uh, and I'd ask you guys, as a microeconomist, these are the types of things I think about. Um, the people of Berkeley are fully in with Greta. Who is the swing voters who would now join the coalition? Uh, uh, well, if the heat wave hit Dallas, right? That... Well, I was going to say if the heat wave hit Washington, then <laughs> oh. it, it changed pretty fast. But anyway, go ahead, Grav. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, in some sense, I agree with Matthew. Because by the time, so Matthew, you started out by talking about science. By the way, that... Matthew, that's that's high praise. He he doesn't agree with anyone ever. So uh, go ahead. <laughs> he just Rob. says that. Well, that Mark just uh, keeps that, I should that say that's me. just Don't the believe anything Mark says about me. <laughs> so you started out by by saying that I I. I can't remember exactly what you said, but something about not wanting to be compared with science fiction or your conjectures to be compared with science fiction. But science fiction can sometimes be really powerful. So I grew up in the North Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, and I recently read a book by Kim Stanley Robinson, well-known sci-fi author called yeah. Ministry for the Future. And Ministry for the Future starts with a really, really excellent chapter centered around a heat wave in the North Indian state of Uttar Pradesh. Millions die. That is the cataclysmic event that sparks yeah. a global rethink around, around climate change. But what happens as a result of that is not a carbon tax, because a carbon tax by that time that point is simply too late. Given the mm. lags in the climate system, it'll take 40 to 50 years for a carbon tax to actually work its way through and reduce emissions enough to cause temperatures to start to go down. So in fact, what happens is that India does a bunch of solar radiation management. It bumps aerosols into the atmosphere to bring the temperature down in this book. And I think that speaks to Matthew's point that if you wait for mm. that cataclysmic yeah. event to happen, it's simply going to be too late. You can do your carbon tax stuff, but there'll be so much demand for adaptation. There'll be so much demand for solar radiation management, geoengineering, all sorts of things that fit into that adaptation category, because that's what we'll have to do at that point. So I Wouldn't love we do both at that point? point? Sorry? Wouldn't we do both? There would we certainly would, we be... We would do both. We would do both. But that's why I was saying I was partly in Matthew's camp in that 
I think that there would be just a massive, <laughs> massive rise in adapt demand for adaptation because that's sure. that's the short term. That's all you can do in the short term. Carbon tax, yes, that's good. We'll have to do that. We'll have to plant forests. Actually, probably have to find plants that can withstand high temperatures and all sorts of things. Um, but we'll have to do a huge amount of adaptation. So I want to pick up on Gaurav's point and crack a half joke. When I speak to my undergraduates, I talk about the Titanic and, and everyone thinks about Leo Cap DiCaprio and that love story. It, they didn't, the, the, there was hubris on the Titanic. It never occurred to them that, that uh, those icebergs could sink the ship. They didn't even bother to have lifeboats and didn't see the iceberg till the last minute. I ask my students and I ask our listeners, in the case of climate change, with the New York Times writing about it daily, do we really not see it? Uh, are we able to imagine? Do we? John Lennon and Yoko Ono had that song, Imagine. If we have more imagination of a horrible future, uh, if we don't adapt, we begin to take baby steps in that direction. And, and so Gaurav told a, a painful story about this abrupt turn in direction of the ship. And I'll stop with my bad analogy. But Mark, if we anticipate coming days of pain, self-interested individuals begin to take proactive steps. And so this is my fight with some behavioral economists, my old colleague at UCLA, Jared Diamond, of do we see the iceberg up ahead and do we mm -hmm. begin to turn or do we just go right into it? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, so so let me, let me uh, I think we, we've got up to the point where we're focused on adaptation and, uh, you know, how viable or not that is and maybe grav I'll, I'll turn to you are the where do you want to push back on this i mean what are the what are the uh, difficulties involved in this actually happening the way matthew is articulating that you know self-interested parties are going to uh, because of shifts in insurance rates and the cost of water and whatever it is that people are going to adjust and you know the the, the costs here to the economy are going to be they're not going to be zero but they're going to be ma manageable well, first of all, okay, so let me start by saying that I think that adaptation is, in the climate science, my reading of the climate science literature, really understudied in terms of looking at it globally and thinking about how much adaptation is actually needed for different uh, emissions pathways. So I think it's really important that we start to study, really rapidly study adaptation and measure the cost of adaptation and figure out what kind of adaptation we need under different different uh, climate pathways. Um, it's really not integrated into, into the scenario analysis world. So that's first and foremost really important because it's really clear to me that given where we are going, we're not bending the curve. Um, well, we are going to bend the curve, hopefully, but not going to bend the curve sufficiently to bring temperatures below two degrees or even 1.5, and definitely not 1.5 without a whole lot of effort. So adaptation is really important. What strikes just me to about put a what finer you're point saying, on that, you're saying, you know, given reasonable assumptions about policy and everything else, the temperature, global temperatures are going to rise over two percent, two degrees Celsius, you know, over over the the rest of the century, probably even higher than that, probably two and a half to three degrees. And with that kind of temperature rise, you got a, a boatload of stuff that's going to happen here, bad stuff that's going to happen. That, that's right. So there's just yeah. this real need for adaptation. And yeah. I don't think we are, as a planet, taking it seriously enough. So that's one thing. But then I'd, I'd sort of question what you're saying here, Matthew, because, again, I'll go back to, to my home state of Uttar Pradesh, and I'll, I'll compare it to, to, to my home country of the UK and and to my wife's home country of Germany and say, fine, in some places, I can see that self-interest really works and um, people come along, there's innovation and we'll find solutions. In other places, it seems to work less well. So if I look at the city of Mumbai and the amount of particulate emission in Mumbai, well, it's been going on for ages. Or same for the city of New Delhi. Or let's take the city of Jakarta in Indonesia, which is sinking. And it's sinking because of excess groundwater loss. And all sorts of plans have come up over a period of 10 years to try and stop that from happening, but the city remains in trouble and it continues to sink. So it feels to me like, yeah, sure, maybe it's a matter of timing before these innovative solutions are implemented around the world. But in that time, a lot of really bad things could happen and a, and a lot of people's life, lives and livelihoods could be seriously at risk. Would you agree with that? I agree. But again, let's, so let's do Jakarta. I think Indonesia is getting ready to build a new capital city. And so a point that I make in my Climatopolis book. So guys, a story from Wall Street. I received a call from an, The Economist magazine a decade ago. And Gaurav, this joke 
this story is directly tied to what you were saying. And the reporter said to me, Matthew, three questions. Do you agree Wall Street is a productive part of America's economy? I said, yes. They said, do you agree that Wall Street faces sea level rise and could be greatly damaged? I said, yes. They said, if you combine those two statements, won't sea level rise destroy Wall Street? And I said, guys, Wall Street is a coordination point. Skilled financiers meet there to trade. The place called Wall Street does not have a monopoly on American economic activity. Economic activity can always move to higher ground to Greenwich, Connecticut. And thus, uh, the key in an economy is where to have productive agglomeration. Where do skilled people choose to co-locate? And if places like Southern Manhattan fail to adapt, fail to adapt these seawalls and these Dutch solutions that Eric Adams and the governor of New York are considering, then Southern Manhattan will lose, but those areas on higher ground will gain. And so a point in my work is this, uh, with the language from economics, is the cross-elasticity. If Southern Manhattan fails to, to adapt, the landowners in Greenwich, Connecticut will gain, and the population. The young, there's always a new generation of young people. They will move to higher ground. And so Gaurav is correct that if there are people who are stuck, who have social networks, they will suffer if they remain in place. But there's always a new generation. We're always rebuilding our capital stock. Cities can always form. Las Vegas was not a great city 80 years ago. We're always rebuilding. And so this competition between places actually creates safe assets. And Moody's in the future will give these assets higher ratings. And they'll be able to borrow at lower interest rates because they move to higher ground. And so our capital stock is not permanent. We're always rebuilding. And my critics kind of miss that. Those who can't move do suffer. And Gaurav is absolutely right there. Uh, but prices will fall for real estate and they'll be compensated with cheaper rents for remaining in a risky place. So let's make two points to that, because I, I, I think I'm talking about two additional things here. One is that it's, it's, it's also about... Um, distributional equity so the poor will suffer and the poor not just because of your network effects and 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 and, and that sort of thing not be able to move but also that a lot of them will be located around in a world with 10 billion people will be located in countries that have poor institutional quality poor governance etc will not be able to in a timely manner implement the systems the regulation the systems of governance direct the capital needed to enable this kind of shift. And if this happens, then in, there will be a very, very horrible transition period during which time a lot of the poor will suffer. And you spoke about protecting the poor. So how do you see, do you agree with that? And if, and, and if you do, do. Or, then how do you see I, us overcoming this challenge? Gaurav just raised a very, very important point. At USC, there's a young assistant professor named Afshin Nixad. And I met with him last week to discuss Gaurav's point. He works with the Nobel laureate Al Roth. And with Al Roth, they have worked on kidney exchange. How do you set up rules of the game to have larger kidney chains? In, in proper English, if you have enough people working in a kidney chain, um, you, you transfer kidneys from donor to recipient with no exchange of money. Gaurav, what I was meeting with Afshin about was how do we in, how do we use the Nobel laureate Al Roth's tools to resettle climate refugees from the developing world to the developed world where there's individuals who want to leave places that are being shocked. There are areas in the U.S. like Detroit and Baltimore that are being depopulated. I believe that there's gains to trade between these areas. So my optimism about adaptation comes from how do we use markets? Mark mentioned water scarcity. How do we use price signals? But also how do we use, uh, how do we use the field of mechanism design to help climate refugees to be welcomed where they go and to avoid immigrant backlash? And so I'm with Gaurav that this is a crucial point. But you're also raising the political dimension here that this is this is you know for all of us as as free market capitalists liberal e e economists all of this makes sense but that's not the way the world works we might easily get into a protectionist scenario in which countries raise borders so that so what you're in, right in about. fact that's true that's the reality right i mean i mean i i don't know this well but my understanding is one of the causes for the mass migration of people from central uh, in Latin America to the U.S. is re climate related. Their livelihoods are being wiped out by heat. You know, they 
and uh, and drought and uh, they they can't make a living so they go they're they're moving north so this is this is a but mark i agree but this creates an opportunity mark i don't do charity i'm gonna give you a bill for this podcast that was a joke Uh, (laughs) well i'll I'll give you a cowbell i'll give you a cowbell how about that so so but to be serious the new york times writes the new york times writes long pieces about how immigrants have rehabilitated shrinking towns like Utica, New York and upstate New York. Imagine a situation where immigrants to the U.S. have a residency requirement in cities that are looking for young people with certain personalities. No, wait, wait, Matthew, though, Matthew, just to say just to stop for a second. You're, no one's arguing. We're not arguing the benefits of immigration. I We're on board. And there's, you know, but to Garab's point, if you look at the world, uh, the world is not on board with immigration. That's Brexit is a lot about immigration. Yeah. And, and actually, th- think I about the make another ahead, point Ron. around Im- Im- immigration, oh, but- and that's only because you brought up Jared Diamond earlier. So I, I feel I have to say something about Jared Diamond and all of this. I mean, and that's not to either praise him or criticize him. It's just that he puts out this really clear picture of migration through human history. And if I think of migration through human history and combine that with the formation of the nation state and then think about climate change, well, and then think about protectionism and, and, and you know, stopping migration, I, I feel that we could be at a point where some nation states, and I'm not talking about the United States or even nations in, in Europe, but some nation states could start to fail. But but uh, that's actually fine with me. I'm a fan of competition. We need companies that don't have a good product to fail. It'd be, so, so Garab, this actually raises a key point. The prospect of failing actually leads to reform. In Phoenix, they'll raise water prices and allocate it more efficiently if there's such an imbalance between supply and demand. And so maybe you're going to say this is a bit of a razor's edge argument, but let there be a country that's xenophobic and and the natives don't have children. The population's going to get older and older. And this the demographics of this economy is that they will collapse. And I claim at that point, they will reform their politics to welcome immigrants. And so I'm actually a believer that is the deadweight loss of stupid xenophobic policies rises. We get reform. And so I actually think this is a very useful discussion. That the frontier of climate change adaptation economics is the political economy of when we currently have some bad policies. We have borders. We have misallocation of water. We have large insurance subsidies. I claim that these policies will not persist as the inefficiencies caused by them rise. I sense that you guys have a little bit of a counter narrative of just falling off a cliff. And that's a point of contention. No, I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. I was going to say that I, it sounds like, you know, first of all, I have no doubt that, it, you know, humans will adapt, right? We always do. And there will be, we'll make a way through it, but it may not be by definition. That, yeah. By definition, right? So yeah. that, that's, yeah. that's taken as a given. It sounds though as if many of your arguments do rest on this notion of a free market, right? And we know that markets are neither perfect nor complete. Right. So it sounds like you're putting a lot of weight on the ability to address all these market failures and having once we address the market failures, then, of course, we will adapt and we'll, we'll come to the right solutions. But there's no there's no guarantee we'll get there in time. Right. <laughs> these are I don't think we me... fall off a cliff. It's, it's more that uh, like everyone says, yeah. I think, you know, humans ability to adapt is enormous. We've been through so many challenges in our in, in, in so our guys, history. Let, let... Let me agree with you and say something provocative. There's a firm called Moody's. And as I understand it, what Moody's does is it provides credit ratings. Suppose that you guys are incentivized to have experts on staff to review for places and firms what physical risks do these face. If we Tesla, do. Oh, and I'm kidding you. I mean, no, if, you're kidding. If, oh, okay. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So if Tesla opens a factory in a place that's going to be 180 degrees in 20 years, I would hope that your nerds downgrade these guys, saying that this factory <laughs> will be obsolete. And then bond buyers would say, we don't want Tesla bonds. And Tesla would be punished for by you guys for not thinking through the consequences of where it's opened its headquarters and factories. This is free market environmentalism and the central role you guys play is Paul Revere. So part of my optimism of how we keep our productivity going forward is you're the adults in the room, the insurers, the credit rating agencies, the, 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 the capital markets. I'm not crediting Elon Musk with being a genius. He's a strange tweeter, but if he has to borrow money, 
If he has to get properties insured, you're the adults in the room. And so for our more subtle listeners, it, I'm, I don't believe in omniscience. I believe in competition. And if you guys are giving the wrong ratings to firms, then a day of reckoning will occur. But there's a competition in your industry to get things right. And so it's through competition, getting closer to perfect competition, that we get to my fantasy of how we get the right price signals to to help capitalists to adapt. You know, I, I don't it's interesting. I, I don't I, I agree with with what you're saying. I, I don't disagree. Uh I guess the debate centers around the ease of adapting versus the ease of mitigating. And I'm, and they're not, again, they're not mutually exclusive. We've got to do both. There's no doubt about it. But the, if we're focused and you, we focus a little bit about how the political economy of getting a carbon tax through and how difficult that will be, no argument there, obviously, but around climate mitigation, or excuse me, climate adaptation, the complications there are also very difficult. I'll give you one example. Kind of a micro example, but talking about it came to my mind, adults in the room, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These are the two largest financial institutions on the planet. They buy mortgages, residential mor- single family residential mortgages from banks, uh, independent mortgage banks and others. They account for 50, 60 percent of all the mortgage loans made, residential mortgage, single family residential mortgage loans made in the country. They do not price for climate risk. And they the reason they can't or they feel like they can't. This is a political economy issue. And first of all, I should say this is this is a problem. There's actually academic research you may know better than I showing Mark, that they're getting it. adversely selected, right? That banks I, I, are. I, so I wrote that paper. Oh, you wrote that. You wrote the paper. Oh, I thought it was yes. some some fellow from Montreal who wrote. Uh, so, so, fantastic. so Chris, could you Google Amin Wazad and me? So I'm the second oh, author. Oh, okay. Paper. Sorry about that. Oh my gosh, I got no, the, no. You read yeah. it. I wrote it. You yeah, wrote so it. Oh, fantastic. That was a great paper. That was a great paper. I just had the, the fellow's name. I guess he's- No, with, it, uh, it's my friend Amin who's listening, or he will be listening. And oh, so, cool. so yes. Okay, very good. Okay, so here's my, that's my point. So, but Fannie and Freddie have a political economy problem. And that is if they price for the risk, meaning they charge a higher insurance rate, you know, for credit risk uh, on loans that are on properties where there's more climate- issues, sea level rise or whatever it is, uh, they are also raising the mortgage rate for lower, in- generally lower income households, because you can see geographically, and again, you know this better than I, but that where climate risk is more of an issue is is where lower income people uh, are, lo- are, are living. They live in areas where there's more climate risk. So th- by doing so, you're you're doing you're going against exactly what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are hoping to do, and that's making mortgages cheaper for lower income households. So this is a, a political economy problem that they can't address or solve. I so, so Mark, I agree. In my book from Yale Press last year, adapting to climate change. And by I the way, I should, Matthew, I should apologize. I should apologize. I mean, I, I should have known that that was your work. I apologize for that, but that was very Mark, good work. You you yeah. read it. I wrote it. That's the way it works. There you go. And so uh, in my book, Adapting to Climate Change, because I've read my paper with Amin, I come out that I want more Americans to be renters, to adapt to climate change. Why is home ownership part of the American dream? Why do we derive status from that? In our sharing economy, I could actually live in Airbnb housing every day. So, Chris, I come out in adapting to climate change saying if we were renters, we'd face lower migration costs. We'd hold a more diversified portfolio. Climate change is all about place-based risk, a shock to Miami. But if you hold the world's portfolio, a small share of the world's portfolio, you're diversified. There's no shock. Even COVID, it didn't move the stock market. There's basically no shock that if you aggregate it across has a macro effect. And so a and so in a renter economy, we avoid all these issues. And so, Mark, I actually think we need we want to adapt to climate change. We want more more of us to be renters and to rent housing from professional management companies who have the capital, the expertise to pay the lumpy fixed costs to retrofit properties and to use big data to monitor the challenges we have. Why are amateurs? Why do we have our money? In a place-based shock economy, why do we have our all our money in one asset at risk when we're amateurs and running it? And that was the theme of my, one of the themes of my book from last year. Yeah, you know, you're you're swinging at a lot of 
<laughs> a, a, a lot of <laughs> entrenched views. Like uh, home ownership is the pathway to wealth building. I mean, you're taking a swing at that. Oh, at but the that's false. That's so, Mark. Did you see my paper oh, last I, I, year? That's a whole nother uh, podcast. So, yeah, so I hear I, you. But so, but to my point about political economy and the ease at which it's going to be, we can make changes in policy to address climate adapt uh, to to adapt to climate change. Now you're saying we we should not incent in home ownership, but uh, rent rent. Now that may be a good thing or a bad thing, but that. Pol- the political economy of that is really difficult or vexed. No? Agreed. And okay. so in my paper from a year ago, I document that African-Americans are more likely to own in cities like Baltimore and Detroit and Cleveland than in tech cities like Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Boston. And so missed out on the tech boom of the last 20 years, because when you own a home, you're making a bet on a place. And Mark, in a world facing climate change, that's an increasingly risky bet. If we're aware of this, diversify rather than owning. And so, Mark, you're right. You asked me at the start, why do I write so many books? It's because I have so many ideas that run counter to how others think, but I can see the future. And this is the world we're going to live in because this is what we need to do to adapt to climate change. And so I read the New York Times with its doom and gloom, and I slightly chuckle, say, yes, this is our current world, but this won't be our world in 20 years. Boy, the New York Times, uh, you're really picking on those poor guys. Let me do this. I want to throw I want to explore what kinds of things can be the policy changes or uh, changes that can be done to help facilitate adaptation. Uh, one thing that we're involved with at, at Moody's in, in, uh, in Graven and Chris uh, very intimately so is around uh, climate risk scenarios that are now being used in the global financial system, more so overseas than in the U.S., although it seems to be headed here, uh, the Federal Reserve is going down this direction, where banks, uh, regulated financial institutions are required to uh, simulate different climate risk worlds and see what impact that has on their balance sheet and income statement. It, 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 in so far, it's more about just gathering information, data, doing the modeling, getting all the infrastructure in place to do the analysis. But ultimately, one could imagine that a regulator might say, "Oh, you have to hold more capital. Your you know your cost of lending is going to be higher if you're lending to a to a uh, to a, a business that is more at risk because of climate risk, or to a place like uh, Miami, for example, because of sea level rise, that's more at risk because of climate risk. Is that something you would embrace, or that's I, that's what you're talking about? That's the adaptation that you're talking about. I support this, and this is actually controversial among libertarians. I've read some writing by John Cochran where he has said, "Why is the Fed entering the climate?" space. Why isn't it focusing on the Phillips curve? And I support what Chris and Gaurav are doing for the following and respectfully disagree with my old teacher, John Cochran. He's not old. I I took his class a long time ago. David Wallace Wells of the New York Times keeps writing about imagination. If banks don't have sufficient imagination for risks they face, then a regulatory audit can be a prompt this is almost like Thaler, Richard Thaler, the Nobel laureate's work on nudge. A nudge can change your behavior if you're blissfully unaware of a path you're on. And so I do support strongly nudging these banks to take a look at the hidden risks in their books, both on carbon exposure, if there is a future carbon tax, and on physical risks. Yes, it, these banks will incur some costs complying with these rules, but it could have, play a very a helpful role in self-diagnosing challenges. Remember before I was blissfully cracking jokes about the Titanic seeing the iceberg. I believe what Gordov and Chris are doing helps banks to not be the Titanic, if I could speak in eighth grade cliches. Got it. So if if you had your king for a day, you need a week. I'm going to give you a week. You're a king for the week. What one, two, three things do you think policymakers should be doing now to help facilitate climate adaptation? So I have sent a piece to the Los Angeles Times that they're clearly going to reject. So when you send a piece to the op-ed and they don't get back to you for a week, it means it was rejected. 
And, and here's what I said. I've been there. Said, yeah, I've been there. I said, yeah. guys, we've got drought in the American West. The water utilities have big data on every consumer's bills. Run a randomized field experiment where you invite customers to participate in facing higher prices. So Mark alluded before that we need to risk price. We need to engage in scarcity pricing. Rather than forcing all people onto higher prices, I wanted to offer people an upfront incentive to sign up for dynamic pricing and let them self-select in. And those who have the most, those with the greatest ability to substitute away from water and electricity would voluntarily opt in and reveal themselves. And this is a way to reduce aggregate demand for electricity and water such that we don't have drought crises and blackouts in Texas. So Mark, to answer your question, we're not running enough experiments, but there's been more agreement during this hour. We recognize that bad politics can sometimes block beneficial changes. One way to, we need guinea pigs here to experiment a little bit. And so if I were king for a day, it would be this small ball of more experimentation with pilot ideas through an opt-in design where we reward guinea pigs for participating so that we can learn about our ability for some of us to cope with higher prices because we need to use more market signals going forward. Think of traffic congestion in New York City. Manhattan's been so slow to adopt road pricing. It's difficult to pilot such a study. Where would you do it? But you can do that with water pricing and electricity pricing. And so that's sort of my minor league king for a day. Hmm. Well, I hope the LA Times publishes it. You should. Uh, I don't think you should send it to the New York Times. That that obviously is not going to that's not going to happen. <laughs> but maybe the LA not Times. Not after this podcast. <laughs> not after this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so, guys, if I can ask you a question, yeah, before, sure, far away. Before I lose you. Has, has Moody's made a decision on how much effort to put in, in, in credit rating, how much attention to decarbonization versus physical risk exposure? Are there more and more auditors on your team? And are there any trade-offs? Are you boosting your squad on judging different, for entities you are grading of their performance on two dimensions, reducing their carbon footprint and reducing their climate physical risks? Um, well, I should say uh, Moody's uh, has the rating agency and uh, that's kind of where you're focused in terms of the ratings on bonds. And you're saying those ratings should also take account of both the uh, the climate exposure, both in terms of, of uh, the physical risk and you know, kind of the transition risk. And Moody's Analytics, and that's where we reside. And the entire organization of Moody's Corp is all in on all aspects of this. Uh, so we've acquired a number of different uh, firms that collect information and data. We just recently purchased RMS, which is a large insurance risk analytics firm you may know very well. Uh, I had a very good talk with Robert Muir Woods, and we had a very good, that was a good acquisition. Yeah, yeah, and they're a great company. Uh, and uh, 427, you may recall, they, they're a Berkeley-based firm that uh, does uh, uh, physical risk scores by on a property level. So in uh, a number of other acquisitions, and, and, and we're, of course, doing, as I mentioned, in our world in economics, a lot of work around climate risk scenarios. So, yeah, we're, we're all in uh, on this. And, you know, it's uh, a lot of it right now is just collecting the data, making sure we understand the data, trying to figure out where the gaps are, trying to fill those gaps, you know, doing some of the modeling, doing this globally. We're now incorporating a, a explicit climate physical risk assumptions and change, transition risk assumptions in our forecasts because we're doing forecasts now out to the end of 2100 you know, for lots of different reasons. And so we are, in, in fact, doing that at this point. In fact, uh, Grav has kind of leaded, led the charge on, on all that work. I will say, going back to the carbon tax, you know, in our forecasting, we now explicitly assume a carbon tax will be implemented, you know, some 10, 15 years from now, something like that, phased in over time, similar to the, you know, the, the uh, CLC proposal with a dividend, you know, to pay out to in a border adjustment tax, like we were talking about earlier. So yeah, we're, we're all in on this. Uh, and investors are, you know, coming around. I, I will say, Matthew, here's one other thing I wanted to uh, mention. We, you know, 
climate is a big problem and we need to address it, but we got a lot of problems that require a lot of attention. You know, the other one that's kind of has probably even more important because it's here and now is cyber risk. That's the other big thing. And that's very costly. So that's that goes to the ability to adjust to climate because we're adjusting to lots of stuff, you know, lots of different stuff and all of it, you know, very complicated and very, very costly. So hopefully that's helpful. Grav, Chris, did I miss anything in terms of, you know, what we're doing? No, that, that's actually just picking up on your last point. That's what that was one of my questions going to be one of my questions to Matthew. We've got lots of problems. The world faces lots of problems, right? You mentioned cyber. There's, there's climate, there's AI, there's 10 billion people on the planet by 2050, geopolitics. And we're talking about something really important, which is climate adaptation. But thinking of all these problems, how successful do you think we will be in adapting? So I'm not brave enough to tackle that. I'm going to give a non sequitur. The silver lining of the COVID crisis was our experimentation with work from home. Work from home helps us to adapt to climate change of all the different permutations. If Matthew's very risk averse, I can work for a Miami firm, but not live in the Miami area, live far away if I only have to commute in two days a week. And so, Gaurav, they, they, I'm always an optimist. My mother warns me against magical thinking. We talk about this. She's my favorite, Bobby. Um, of, um, but the, the COVID, our, our adaptation to COVID only increases my confidence in my past claims about climate change adaptation. Of course, it was great suffering. Close friends of my father's died in New York City. And, and of course, I understand this, but the economy as a whole showed an amazing pivot. And, and, and those economists who use very tight mathematical models like the Nobel laureate William Nordhaus, these models can't incorporate these. And, and, and so I support the formalism of modern economics, but we slightly have straight jacketed models that don't appreciate the Austrian ability of our economy to pivot when very ambitious people, the, the, a benefit of these 8 billion people coming back to Julian Simon are all these potential innovators thinking through new paths for us. And so Mark, if I had to wrap up, Julian Simon had such a great fight with Paul Ehrlich on whether we were going to run out of natural resources. On some level, I'm trying to set myself up as the new Julian Simon of a benefit of having all these people is all the experiments we're running and ideas are public goods. As we learn a path forward, the best ideas will be discovered and don't need to be reinvented. And so this old Julian Simon, Paul Ehrlich debate is back and how we use markets and human capital to fuel our acceleration against the very real issues that you guys are working on. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to end on, a, I agree with you. I, I want to end on an optimistic note. I mean, I, I we can't underestimate the uh, creativity of, uh, of people, particularly if they're given the incent, the right incentives, you know, if, if you can make money doing something, good things happen, you know, and let prices work. Good things happen. I, I I very much agree with you, and I think you're right. It's one of those things, and, and I think for Americans, it's more that's more likely than in most other places, right? Because we are very much that our thinking is along the lines that you're expressing. We want to let markets work, so I think for us that's going to work. I guess the you know the one concern would right. be what happens in the rest of the world. But and I think no, I'm, a note there uh, because. Um, in returning to the University of Southern California from Chris's Johns Hopkins, I am now only working with PhD students working on adaptation in the developing world. And Gaurav would be much happier with me. I'm learning from my students from Bangladesh, from India. These guys patiently look me in the eye and say, Professor, you're wrong. And so while this hour I've come across a little bit as a zealot, um, in my day-to-day -day interactions in my office, my young PhD students are fight, fighting is the wrong word, debating me point by point as we discuss about frictions, uh, issues in capital markets, issues in ins insurance markets, and challenges for poor people in the developing world to adapt. Mark, if we have time, I want to give, can I give one example? Yeah, sure. Far away. So in Islam Haq's work on farmers in Bangladesh. These guys have been growing rice and soil salinity from sea level rise is raising the soil salinity where they had been growing rice. If they could pivot to shrimping, 
they could earn a living. But there's a question of you need extra land to shrimp and you need to get the shrimp to the rich guys at Dhaka for them to eat it. And they don't have cold storage to get the shrimp there. And so mm. these, I'm looking at Mark and he's giving this a B plus, but, but these are sort of the nitty gritty issues of mm -hmm. how thinking through without engaging in wishful thinking, for those who have to change their game and pivot away from rice to something like shrimping, is it as easy as a Chicago economist would write on a blackboard? And of course it isn't. Of what are the transition steps? And how are we going to get from here to there? And my students are doing new empirical work, not just chanting at me that the market works. And this is where I learn. And this is my agenda over the last 10 years of my career, of, of the real nitty gritty of connecting the dots. As, and I think we all agree that that's where we have to go. Fantastic. I mean, I, 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 I feel a lot better after this conversation. I really do. I mean, because, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you made laid out a really strong case with regard to, and I, I, I love this term endogenous innovation. It feels right to me, particularly in this context. So I want to thank you for taking the time uh, and um, letting us uh, push, push a little bit on your, your thinking. Uh, it, Cause I, I think we learned a, a lot from that and uh and hope to have you back. And ho hopefully you're 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 right. Uh, uh, very uh, important that you're right because uh, uh, if not, we got a lot of challenges dead ahead. But thank you, Mark. Thank you. This was a lot of fun and informative for me. Well, with that, listener, we're, this is uh, uh, the podcast, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Take care now. Mm -hmm.